The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. A strong start to the second quarter on Wall Street as gains in manufacturing data sent stocks higher, while the rally in Asia sees markets hit a seven-month high. The UK Parliament fails to break the Brexit deadlock after lawmakers once more struggle to agree on alternative plan, while Prime Minister Theresa May calls a cabinet meeting to discuss the government's next move. Expects Italy's public finances to get worse, projecting the country's deficit to rise 2.5% this year, above the 2% target agreed with the European Commission. Uh, Lyft gives up its debut gains, falling 12% on its second day of trade, sparking questions about the course of other hotly anticipated IPOs, including Uber. As President Erdogan's AK Party protests and contests the results of elections in key cities, the F-35 is now being suspended to Turkey. U.S. manufacturing activity picked up in the month of March with production, new orders and hiring all rising. The Institute for Supply Management Index rose to 55.3%, rebounding from a two-year low in February and coming in above market expectations. Construction spending in the U.S. also beat forecasts, jumping by 1% to a nine-month high. Well, in that backdrop, and let me take you to the reaction on markets because it has been a tug-of-war for data watchers looking to see whether the evidence is strong enough to support a Fed rate cut. And don't forget top economic advisor to the White House, Larry Kudlow, has been pushing for a 50 basis point reduction from the Fed. Moody's hit out yesterday saying this would put the Fed into panic mode. So effectively calling for the Fed not to be too trigger happy. But uh, the data has been uh, weak. Uh, some of the survey readings also mixed on sentiment. And investors are, are trying to ascertain whether the bond market is now pointing to a recession down the track, whether the signals are weak enough for the Fed to act. But at this point, uh, many economists are lining up saying, the data is not that weak. We are coming back and it does suggest we are pulling back from some of the highs, but it's not enough to suggest a rate cut. And if you look at the market reaction, there was some market euphoria on the back of that U.S. data that I've mentioned. You can see it for the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq as they kicked off the second quarter. Fairly decent start. 1.3 almost on the Dow by the close of the session, just over 1.1% higher for the S&P 500. And uh, tech stocks are well and truly in the mix again, 1.3% higher for the NASDAQ. I want to take you to the U.S. banks because as we saw the U.S. 10-year yield start to lift on the back of some of that data, it was a supportive backdrop for many of these banks where, don't forget the narrative has been a patient Fed that could be turning dovish and uh, that's been negative for the outlook for NIMS for many of these banks across the board. So in terms of the biggest gainers, JP Morgan, 3.3%, outpaced by Citigroup with a gain of just over 3.4%, also in the mix and one of the best performers, Morgan Stanley with a rally of 3.1%. 
The oil price, uh, let's just take a quick look at how we're traveling on WTI and Brent prices as both bounce higher this morning. WTI saw its highest level since early November, also crossing its 200-day moving average in session yesterday, 61.71 on the charts. What we've got in the backdrop, investors eyeing some of the production impact from Venezuela and also sanctions on Iran that seems to be impacting the supply along with the Saudis, of course, cutting, taking more product out of the market. Uh, we are just over that 69 handle on Brent in the early trade. Let's uh, move on to the Asian markets. The early picture is also positive. Uh, Shanghai chasing four tenths of a percent. Still a lot of optimism that a trade deal will be formed at some point between the U.S. and China with further talks taking place in Washington. But uh, you can see some of the market levels in terms of percentage gains a little bit slimmer this time in this session. We've got uh, Australia actually one of the better performers, almost four tenths on that chart, but uh, just over a tenth on Hong Kong and, and similar picture too for Japan in session. The opening calls, this is what we're chasing, more Brexit chaos uh, despite a number of options being presented again to Parliament, yet we, we still have no option on what Brexit will look like. So the FTSE looks cautious this morning, got 12 to the upside, 10 on the Zetradax by comparison, unchanged on the CAC in France, and we're chasing about 12, 12 points so far on the Italian market. So we look like we'll be inclined into the green at the start of the session, but it is a cautious start likely at this point. And let's get some views on where the global economy is likely to trade. Uh, joining us now, Rick Deverell, Chief Economist and Global Head of Macro Strategy at Macquarie. Thank you for joining us this Thank morning. Thank you very much. And uh, let me just ask you about some of the data we saw stateside because the market who, well, I should say some of the watchers have been hoping for decent numbers, got a dose of that yesterday, not in retail sales, but in the, some, some of the manufacturing numbers. Yeah, so, I mean, the US is slowing. Last year we had the fiscal stimulus. It's not at all surprising that the US is slowing. And as it slows, it's difficult to read out exactly where it's going to settle. And that's why, of course, the market's spending so much time looking at this data. Um, on the manufacturing side, it was reassuring that the ISM went up. But I would say that with an ISM at 55, it's probably going to slow a bit more over the next couple of months because that's just what it normally does. Um, so I think, I think that process still has some time to run. But it does show that, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, some people were worried about a very big slowdown in the United States. I just don't think that's happening. Uh, what do you think the, um, the issue is as far as uh, whether this is a temporary dip or this is the beginning of the end of this cycle? We've talked a lot about are we late in the cycle? How do you interpret any potential rebound here stimulated by central bank action? action? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I always think globally first and then look at the major countries. And it, it's very confusing at the moment because we have quite different stories in the major countries. In the United States, we had a big stimulus last year, and now that is washing out of the system, so it's slowing down. Whereas China's the opposite. Remember that last year, China was, at the beginning of the year, had very tight monetary policy, and now they're stimulating. So what we're seeing now is the US slowing, China showing evidence of bouncing, um, and of course, the sick man in all of this is still Europe. Um, so what we need to have clear evidence that at least the manufacturing sector is bottoming out is we need those PMIs in Europe to turn. That hasn't happened yet, but with, I think that's what happens next. So that's why I'm still reasonably constructive. But we are at that point in the cycle where things have slowed right down. Generally, global industrial production doesn't get much weaker than this without tipping into recession. So you do need things to turn in the next couple of months. Thankfully, the green shoots are starting to turn up there. What is the problem here, though? Is it a, uh, ultimately still a demand issue or is it a, um, a monetary issue? I mean, the central banks obviously have one role in life, which is to create easier money where yeah. they see uh, troubled uh, economic conditions. Um, but we've already got incredibly low interest rates. So yeah. um, is this ultimately a demand problem that will not be overcome by 
further central bank largesse. All it will do is pump up equity prices. Yeah. So again, it's really interesting in that, I mean, when we track the industrial side, so when we look at things like the ISM, the ISM tends to have very big cycles between recessions. So this is the third time where we've had an upcycle and a downside since the last recession. So that's just the normal inventory cycle that kind of comes and goes. And remember, growth peaked in December of 2017. So it's actually been slowing down for quite a long time at a global level. It's just that now we're at that really interesting point where global industrial production's basically been flat for a few months. And, and that's why people have got worried. In, in terms of why it's been so soft in the most recent period, I mean, my suspicion is it's mainly about the tariffs. So it's, it's kind of interesting that the tariffs were there, nothing seemed to happen, nothing seemed to happen. Then financial markets panicked in October, November and December. So remember Q4 was the worst quarter we've had for a long time in terms of equity markets. Mm. And the month of December was the worst month since the Great Recession. And then of course central banks went, oh, this is a bit scary. Um, and, the and the Fed turned on a dime, the Chinese are stimulating. And of course now we've had the best quarter we've had for a long time. And really the markets I think overreacted on the way down, but it started to spill over into the real economy. And now the markets have probably overreacted on the way up. If, if you look through the two quarters, not much has actually happened. The S&P is still on the trend that it's been on for 10 years. Um, and the hope is that this return to positivity in markets now spills back into the real economy and an activity starts picking up again. And hopefully bond markets too, because this has been one of the issues. You've got this glaring inversion in the yield curve where the 10-year yield is now sitting below that three-month T-bill yield. And investors saying typically in the past that has been precursor to recession. There's been a signaling function. Do you think this time round it has that same risk for investors or is there something else going on, QE or other factors? Yeah, look, it's, it's always hard to say. I mean, first up, I, I, I treat the bond market in general and the yield curve with great respect. So there are very good reasons to believe that it may not be as good as it has been in the past. But since World War II, everyone says this these days, there's only been one miss. There's only been once where it's inverted, certainly from twos to tens, and we haven't had a recession. And that was in the late 1990s, and that was partly because the Fed eased. So when LTCM fell it, it eased. There are reasons to believe it's not as good an indicator this time, and that is basically about financial repression in Europe and Japan. So when we still have a, remember in Europe, we have a, 90, a minus 40 basis point policy rate. Um, and in Japan, they're pegging their 10-year yield at zero. So given that the US curve is the global curve, that is probably influencing yields. But, but it, it, it's a worry. The, the key point I make to clients, though, is that in the past, once the curve's inverted, and we haven't really inverted yet, twos to tens haven't inverted. In fact, 90-day build tens has now flipped back out of negative as well. The recession's always followed a long time later. So the average is about 15 months later. So it's not, it's not telling us we're going to have a recession this year. It's certainly starting to look like end of cycle, although we're not quite there yet, but it's, it's, it, it's a while away yet. So, which is why I think it's very unlikely we have a US recession this year. Rick, you're staying with us. We'll pick up the conversation in just a moment. Rick Deverell, Chief Economist and Global Head of Macro Strategy at Macquarie. We're also going to get a preview into next week's IMF World Bank Spring Meetings later on today when Christine Lagarde, Managing Director of the International Fund, speaks to our US colleagues. That interview coming away at 16.30 CET. UK Prime Minister Theresa May will hold a special Cabinet meeting today to discuss the next steps in the Brexit process after MPs failed to support any alternative to her deal. Uh, Willem is in Westminster. So four defeats and a resignation, Willem. Just walk us through the action as it happened. So last night we had a series of these votes, Jeff, on the alternatives that Parliament had agreed to propose. None of them 
got a majority. Some of them came very close. One of them became very close indeed, and in fact is just three votes short of that majority that might encourage the government to pursue that course of action. That is the idea the UK would remain a member of the customs union long into the future that was put forward by a very senior, relatively veteran conservative backpencher, Kenneth Clark. Now, what's really interesting is to think about what this means now that all four of these have fallen by the wayside overnight. Will they try again on Wednesday? That is a distinct possibility because once again, Parliament has control of the agenda that afternoon. Here was the response of the government's Brexit minister, Stephen Barclay, though, to the fact that none of these commanded a majority in light of the fact that we are now just a few days away from that April 12th deadline. To secure any further extension, the government will have to put forward a credible proposition to the EU as to what we will do with that extra time. This House has continuously rejected leaving without a deal, just as it has rejected not leaving at all. Therefore, the only option is to find a way through which allows the UK to leave with a deal. The government continues to believe that the best course of action is to do so as soon as possible. If the House were to agree a deal this week, it may still be possible to avoid holding European parliamentary elections. Now, if you listen very carefully to that language from Stephen Barclay, he doesn't say the deal, he doesn't say the government's deal, he doesn't say the Prime Minister's deal, he says a deal, implying that the government is softening to the idea of Parliament having a say in the future relationship, if not at least the divorce settlement known as the withdrawal agreement. Here was Jeremy Corbyn's argument, he's the leader of the Labour opposition party, as to why Parliament should get a chance on Wednesday to try once more. If it's good enough for the Prime Minister to have three chances at her deal, then I suggest that possibly the House should have a chance to consider again the the options that we had before us today in a debate on Wednesday so that the House can succeed where the Prime Minister has failed in presenting a credible economic relationship with Europe for the future that prevents us crashing out with no deal. Now, allies of the Prime Minister and members of the government can criticise this process all they want. But remember, it's just been five days since the start of Parliament's efforts to find an alternative. The government has had since December to do so and has so far failed. In terms of the European reaction, well, as you can imagine, they are once again willing to express their impatience over this process. Guy Verhofstadt, he's the man responsible for Brexit inside the European Parliament, which also, let's not forget, has to ratify any deal has said that he thinks the UK really needs to make a decision this week. He really hopes, he said, the Parliament is able to do so. Um, I think we've got some pictures, haven't we? We have the naked protest as well. Willem, I don't know whether you were, were in the chamber and you were able to... Have we got those pictures? Have we got... Oh, no, I'm being told that we're not allowed to show them. What a shame. We were going to bring those pictures to you. We can't show them. Um, Willem, they weren't actually protesting about Brexit, though, were they? No, it was focused on climate. There were about a dozen people who went up into the public gallery inside the House of Commons wearing not a huge amount and after a few minutes were taken out by the police. Uh, Many of them wearing very, very little, as I said, caused a huge stir inside the Commons, but really no impact on the Brexit decision making, apparently.
All right. Thanks very much indeed. For, what's that? Have we got those pictures? No, no, we still don't have those pictures. Sorry. We'll see if we can get those to you before the end of the program. But somehow I suspect that we won't be allowed. Karen, let's send it out to you. We've come up empty handed, a little bit like Brexit in Parliament at this point. Uh, speaking of which, let me take you to some of the house views that we're now seeing from the likes of Deutsche and Goldman Sachs. Well, Deutsche Bank has gone bearish on sterling, saying the chances of a no-deal Brexit have now increased. The lender raised its estimates, I should say, for a no-deal from 20% to 25%, also targeting an exchange rate of 90 pence per euro, so I guess you can call them bearish. Uh, when it comes to Deutsche Bank's uh, best-case scenario, it is that the government won't deliver any agreement reached by Parliament and that a general election will be needed. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs says Brexit has cost the UK... £600 million a week since the 2016 referendum, with GDP declining by around 2.5%. The bank also sees a 15% chance of a no-deal Brexit, which would cause a 17% decline in the pound. Jeff. Thanks very much, Karen. Um, Rick Deverell is with us, Chief Economist and Global Head of Macro Strategy at Macquarie. So let's just talk a little bit about how you then take advantage of the scenario that you've laid out here. Um, recession, if it happens, will not be this year. It will be 2020. Central banks are on the front foot. They are stimulating. There is a relief rally because China is also taking action at this point. Do you just buy equities and risk assets knowing that corporate earnings are slowing, but it doesn't matter because the central banks are engaging? Uh, it's, it's a very good question. To be honest, with risk assets... I actually think it's quite risky in the near term. And, and that's because... It's I, risky to be in risk assets. It's risky to that's be, the point, Rick. It's risky you make to be more money risk. that way. Well, you know, it, it's, um, the, the, the challenge, I think, at the moment is that you've had such a big rally. So, again, if I, I always kind of yeah. try to look at things in level terms and then think about changes. And literally, if you draw a line through the bull market in the S&P 500, we're now about three or four percentage points above the trend that's been in place for the last 10 years. It's gone up by 13% a year. Um, it went well below trend when markets panicked in Q4. We've now had the best Q1 for, what are people saying, since 1980. So what you need now is you need clear evidence that the economy is turning. Or to put it another way, markets are pricing the turn already, or at least bond and equity markets, so, sorry, uh, commodity and equity markets are pricing. The problem is I think it's going to be quite slow. So I think it will come, but given that the United States is going to keep slowing for a time as the fiscal juice runs out, and given that I don't think the Chinese want a big bounce, I think they've stabilised growth, but they're not looking for a really big upside from here. And given that Europe is still very soft, in all likelihood it will take a few months before it becomes very clear that we've got a recovery happening. And in that world, my guess is that equities probably bounce sideways and the risk is that you know, something crazy happens geopolitically and, and they come off for a time. As we move into the second half of the year, however, when I think that the recovery is becoming more clear, I do think that then you just buy risk assets. OK, we're going to come back to you. We'll pick up the conversation in just a moment. It just occurred to me, Karen, since we're on the podcast, yes. even if we were to play those pictures, you wouldn't get the benefit on the, on the podcast. The naked protest in Parliament pictures. Oh, we're showing them now. We're showing them now. No, we're not really. I know, I know, it's awful, isn't it? Um, let's just tell you something you will need to know, though, if you are listening on the podcast, is what the uh, economic calendar for the day looks like. Euro area producer inflation is expected to tick down slightly on last month, while analysts forecast continued contraction in UK construction activity. Stateside we are expecting durable goods and auto sales data. 
We'll take the break. We'll be right back. Turkey's president will contest the weekend's election results after a shock upset. We'll cross live to Istanbul after the break. And if you're just watching The Box and you're wondering what the podcast is, well, if you can't get enough of Scoop Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, iTunes, Spotify or Google Play to have a listen and to download today's episode. And for our podcast listeners, stick around. President Erdogan's AK party is contesting mayoral election results in Turkey's two biggest cities after shock upsets in the weekend vote. A quick look at how the lira is perched in morning trade today uh, versus the dollar. You can see uh, the dollar marching higher again, uh, 1.2% uh, firmer to the Turkish currency. Well, let's get to Hadley for more in Istanbul. Hadley, the weekend result against the president seems to some to have been a referendum on the president's handling of the economic crisis there in Turkey. So give us the latest uh, and what the reading is. That's interesting, Karen. The president and his act party are really pushing back here against a lot of these election results. These were, of course, mayoral elections across Turkey. And we know, of course, that he's lost out in at least four major cities. Now they're seeming to contest uh, the results of these elections, at least in the capital city of Ankara, as well as right here in Istanbul as well. The main rival CH party seemingly had gained so much ground against President Erdogan's act party. And now the act party is pushing back. Now, I do have to mention that when it comes um, to the act party's strength across Across the country, they were still hitting around 51% in terms of the polls. But with the loss of these major cities, you have to remember that some 40 to 45% of the population would then come under the control of rival parties, including, of course, the main opposition CH party. So a lot happening in that space. And over the next couple of days, it's going to be very interesting, frankly, to see this play out because analysts that we've been speaking to here on the ground are quite worried about this distraction at a time when they had been hoping, at least, that the president and his party and government would really be focusing much more on much needed economic reform. Now, another conversation that's also happening on the sidelines of this late yesterday, the United States, the Pentagon, uh, announced that they would be suspending the sale of F-35 stealth fighter jets and suspending the movement of manuals and supplies and parts for those jets to Turkey. This, of course, is all off the back of an ongoing dispute that they've been having uh, with President Erdogan and his government over whether or not that they would purchase S-400 missile defense systems from Russia. And, of course, we heard earlier this week from the foreign minister of Turkey coming out in a press conference with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, essentially saying that there's no reason that the United States or any other country should be telling them what to do when it comes to purchasing weapons from any country that they deem fit. Of course, the response from the Pentagon is that this could jeopardize and compromise the F-35 in terms of uh, not just the software and the hardware there, but also, of course, in terms of air defense systems. And the outgoing head of the uh, NATO uh, alliance in terms of uh, the U.S. perspective was saying just at his hearing a couple of months ago that this would be something that he would uh, protest and that he would uh, be set dead against. I think it's really interesting, though, as you take a step back and look at that ongoing relationship between Ankara uh, and uh, the Kremlin in terms of what they're doing with the situation in Syria, how close they've come over the last several months in particular, even in spite of the fact that Russia really seems to be straddling two relationships here, their relationship with Riyadh that's been ongoing and growing, as well as this relationship uh, with President Erdogan. You remember, of course, that the relations were hitting an all-time low back in 2014-2015, but really the failure of NATO to come uh, to the aid of Turkey uh, really pushed them seemingly into the arms of the Russians, and that relationship continues to grow with the Turkish pipeline as well. Um, so there are a lot of moving parts to this story, but I think it's really interesting that the United States, President Trump, the Trump administration deciding to kick the Turks and kick the president seemingly while he was down. Guys? 
Let me just ask, ask you quickly about the lira because we have seen a little bit of movement, some weakening in recent sessions. Not quite like what happened last week when there was intervention by the government. But what do you make of the movement we've seen in the currency on the back of the election results? Well, frankly, we haven't seen too much volatility off the back of these results. But I think it's interesting when we speak privately to not just analysts, but also investors as well. They said, you know, this isn't as low as it's going to go, that this could get much worse in the coming months if we don't see those much needed economic reforms in terms of the movement by the government to do that. There has been an, also a conversation about whether or not we could see a cabinet shakeup um, for President Erdogan's government. Now, of course, you'll remember that his son-in-law uh, a little over a year ago took over both economic and financial portfolios for Turkey. There have been a lot of questions raised over his fitness for that position. I think that that's something most people would say privately, at least while they're in this country. And the question, of course, remains if they move forward with those economic reforms, if we're going to see much more of a stabilization of the lira. And that, of course, has a lot to do with the independence of the central bank as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.